Welcome to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. My name is Brian Gigantino. When state socialism in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union collapsed between 1989 and 1992, not only did millions of people find themselves in independent countries, but they were also all of a sudden living in what many so-called experts and opportunistic politicians referred to as societies and economies in quote-unquote transition. The concept of transition worked from the assumption that capitalism and democracy, as imagined in the West, would be the post-communist world's natural endpoint now that capitalist globalization had been ridded of its biggest historical obstacle, state socialism in the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact countries. But capitalist markets, just like a socioeconomic transition to them, are anything but natural processes. In fact, creating market economies in former communist countries required a heavy-handed political and social intervention in order to deconstruct and destroy societies and their interdependence on each other that state socialism had spent decades building. This destructive development of markets across a vast part of the globe was largely led by teams of economists who sincerely believed that the universal potential of marketization could be explained alone by economic orthodoxy, groundless models, and abstract projections. The rapid and destructive application of market reforms throughout the communist world was called shock therapy. Shock therapy led to a cataclysmic social crisis for the vast majority. Living standards, demographic trends, political stability, and economic growth in general plummeted to abysmal levels. Decades of sociality and collective political coherence were actively replaced by logics of individual consumerism and utopian fantasies of Western-led globalization. This mixed global and local logic of markets ushered in an era where families, neighborhoods, and colleagues, as well as regions and even entire countries, were suddenly being mediated by an economic logic that celebrated and rewarded individualism and ethno-nationalism in ways unlike ever before. However, for a very small percentage of people, things seemed to be getting better. This minority, was held up as a celebrated example that Western financial institutions and local elites could use in order to justify repeating over and over again for decades the successes of shock therapy and the benevolence of the new capitalist arrangement. But across the former communist world, the vast majority lost out. Now, far-right nationalists are taking advantage of the decades of simmering working-class discontent and resentment that the unyielding travesty of socialist collapse has ushered in and deepened 
in the absence of an alternative internationalist political program focused on the working population and their needs. But how can we compare the varied yet still intimately connected and similar results of state socialism's collapse across Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, Russia, and Central Asia? Luckily, Kristen Godsey and Mitchell Orenstein have done just that in their excellent new book, which I highly recommend everybody read, called Taking Stock of Shock, The Social Consequences of the 1989 Revolutions. On today's episode of Reimagining Soviet Georgia, myself, Sopo Japaridze, and Becca Natsvlishvili are lucky to have Kristen Godsey and Mitchell Orenstein on as guests to discuss their new book, Taking Stock of Shock, how they wrote it, and how their findings relate to the decades of egregious and socially destructive market reforms in post-communist Georgia. Mitchell Orenstein and Kristen Godsey, thank you so much for joining us on Reimagining Soviet Georgia. So please, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? All right, so my name is Kristen Godsey. I am a professor of Russian and East European studies and a member of the graduate group in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. And I am an anthropologist and ethnographer. I've been studying the region for the better part of 25 years. I'm actually in Belgrade right now, um, talking to you from the heart of the Balkans, I suppose. And I am really interested primarily in women's issues and uh, sort of gender and transition and the impacts that the move from state socialism to capitalism has had on ordinary people's lives. And I have written a number of books on this topic. And most recently, obviously, I collaborated with Mitchell on Taking Stock of Shock, where we truly, really try to get uh, to come to terms and get an understanding of the actual sort of empirical reality of these various discourses that are floating around the region. Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Mitchell Orenstein. I'm a political economy scholar of uh, Central and Eastern Europe. I've been working on the region like Kristen since 1990, basically. Uh, and uh, in fact, also traveled to Prague in 1987. So I had at least a little bit of a glimpse at uh, how things looked under communism as well. But but um, I've been I initially was interested in the politics of economic reform in the region and, and uh, why, uh, you know, how countries were kind of managing reform while also trying to build democracy, uh, kind of a big puzzle. And uh, then I've sort of branched out, you know, in studying a lot of different types of policy reforms, um, pension privatization, um, flat tax, a lot of the neoliberal reforms that spread throughout the region. And um, and with a primary emphasis on the Visegrad countries, but also, you know, increasingly the, the region as a whole. And, uh, uh, and I'm a, also a professor of, um, of Russian and East European studies at University of Pennsylvania and also political science, which is kind of my home discipline. Although like Kristen, I've worked in a number of diff different disciplines, you know, my work crossing over into economics, into sociology primarily, um, 
with social welfare state, you know, kind of emphasis and uh, international relations, many other areas. Um, so I think that like who we are is we're both kind of interdisciplinary scholars of, uh, of Russia and East Europe and post-communist transition. And we actually worked in parallel. We didn't, I don't, I don't think we actually ever met one another, Kristen, for the first like 25 years <laughs> that we were working on the region or even actually heard of one another probably because of being in different disciplines. And I think that's what really made this book extremely important you know, for both of us and I think for the field as a whole that we were finally able to have a kind of interdisciplinary conversation about this, an honest one. And, um, and you know, the, what was striking to us initially when we got working on this project was just how disparate, how far apart our disciplinary perspectives were. So we came at this with an understanding that, wow, you know, we, we've grown up in this discipline, and by the way, in also different regional contexts, and therefore have completely opposite views, honestly, about what the transition produced. And uh, un unfortunately, that's not surprising. That's kind of typical. <laughs> what we found in working on this book is that people in different social science disciplines, as well as with different political leanings in the region itself, have completely opposite perspectives about the socioeconomic impact of 1989 revolutions, right? And, and I think what was special about this book and our collaboration in this book was that we were both uh, willing to have that conversation, willing to have sort of an honest interchange. We both saw ourselves as interdisciplinary, right? And willing to have those conversations. And willing to learn, you know, from the other side, willing to, and, and honestly, although we had quite different perspectives and probably to some extent, you know, have somewhat different perspectives, actually the writing of this book was very, very easy for us. Um, we worked, uh, I think, very easily together. Um, our process was that Kristen drafted certain chapters initially and I drafted certain chapters initially, but then we traded chapters and reworked them how we wanted. And there was no point, there's no sentence in the book, I can be quite sure, that both Kristen and I don't both agree on, right? Um, so we've, we've combed it many, many times, you know, and any areas of disagreement um, were, were changed, altered, you know, and it was never, I don't think, maybe Kristen had a different opinion, but it was never, never, never hard to find a compromise language or a compromise argument or something we could both be happy with. Yeah, I mean, I would, no, no, I would agree with that. I mean, I definitely think that um, I tend to write more politically and to the extent that I feel like we tried to remain neutral in this book, uh, to try to remain like, you know, above the fray. That to me was a little different than what I would normally do. Um, and I think that's because part of the collaboration was to really, to try to appeal for pe to people working in the policy realm at the World Bank or the e um, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, um, or even at the EU level, who knows where, in, in different policy circles, I think that there, there's a need to kind of say, here's the data here is our interpretation of the data. And these interpretations are different depending on where you are in the region and depending on who you are within the region and even within the country. Um, and, and so these two narratives are both correct. And what I don't think we did, I think to the extent that we, ought, we, we, we kind of passed judgment on that, we said, look, there was a different way. There was this Chinese model 
um, that didn't require shock therapy, that didn't require rapid privatization, that didn't require all of these things. And that still led to economic growth, in fact, greater levels of economic growth and less pain than the East European model. And we got a little bit of flack for that, I think. I think one of the anonymous reviewers kind of pushed back and said that the Chinese model wasn't relevant here. And besides, it's not a democracy. And all these countries in Eastern Europe are now beautiful democracies, right? So I think that there was, there was a, there, to the extent um, in the, at the end of the book, I think there, there was a little bit of holding back on my part because, you know, at certain points during the book, I would, you know, read the data or especially just talking to people in Bulgaria. I've been in Bulgaria, I'm now in Serbia, just talking to people about how bad things are right now. And again, I think the other big difference between Mitchell and I is that Mitchell tended to work in um, former Czechoslovakia, Czechia, and Hungary and Poland, which are wealthier, more northern, uh, more integrated European countries. And most of my work has tended to be down here in the Balkans. Um, I mean, Serbia is still not in the EU, right? And so, and like, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And I, I just walked by, you know, a massive pro-Russian sort of celebration somewhere. Um, and I can tell you that there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of frustration, there's a lot of nostalgia um, among the, the older um, generation here, as well as in Bulgaria. But the, the, the thing that I find really interesting is there's a kind of vacuum on the left in terms of leftist parties that are really trying to address some of these systemic problems with neoliberalism and privatization and, and all of the things that have happened in transition in the last 30 years. Now, that seems to be changing in places like Croatia and Slovenia, where you have these interestingly kind of emergent democratic type socialist parties that are more akin to like Die Linke in Germany or even closer maybe to the Belgian Workers' Party. So I think things are changing. But one of the things that you mentioned in your introduction or before we started recording was that oftentimes, you know, there's this story that no matter how bad the transition was, it was worth it because everything that came before was so terrible and bad. And I think that the only way to kind of address the narrative of all of this incredible pain and all these lives that have been sacrificed and all of the, you know, anxiety and psychosocial stress and all the things that everybody in this region has been through, and I could make that list really long if you wanted me to, was all worth it because yes, communism was Stalin and gulag and famines and it was evil. And so therefore it had to, it had to end no matter what. And, and I think that first of all, um, one of the, re one of the arguments that is often made about socialism as it existed in the 20th century is that it was, you know, an economic catastrophe. Um, and I think one of the things that the book uh, does really well is to show that what came after socialism was pretty catastrophic as well. So if your basis for the legitimacy of a political or economic system is its economic efficacy, you kind of have a problem making the argument that one was better than the other. So let's just put it that way. Demo the question of democracy is a, is a different thing. But I agree with Mitchell that we it was very easy to write this book in the sense that we collaborated very well. We had a wonderful research assistant who was an economist, um, and, or I guess he was studying economics at the time. He's now gone into um, political science. But he was really, really excellent at anytime we had a question, what data do we need? What are the numbers? 
you know, uh, Nick would run off, Nicholas would run off and, and find, you know, all of these wonderful data sources and sort of do some number crunching where Mitchell and I could then hash out what it was we wanted to do. And I don't know, Mitchell, if you want to talk about the index that we initially thought we would prepare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, that's a good point. So um, I, I want to say two things. One is that when Christian mentions her discomfort at certain things and when we're writing, that was not in dialogue with me. That was in dialogue no. with our critics. <laughs> and it was, yeah, so it, with our critics. In, right. In the right. review process for the book, it was sent mm -hmm. to certain neoliberal scholars. Yes. Who, and who that was really a, a problem. <laughs> An important, I've always felt that, that people on that side of things, they're an important, you know, uh, that's an audience we're trying to reach, right? And so what we, we made a decision at some point, and, and it's important because they're in the international organizations. We actually thought we, that our book would influence people in international organizations. In fact, we organized a conference together with the World Bank um, you know, as a part of this because in those organizations that they're also people who are rethinking, you know, the strategy. You may not see that in, say, healthcare in Georgia, you know, advice, but <laughs> but there are people in the bank who are rethinking what the results were, and um, so so we were intentionally trying to reach that audience, and as a result, we made the decision later in the book to, at the behest of reviewers, to to focus the book entirely on what we would call in political science the dependent variable, like what happened. Right. Right. And not at all on why it happened. Right. So we don't say anything in the book at all about whether this was a result of communism, whether this was a result of neoliberal reforms, whether this was a result of sunspots, you know, or whatever, you know, we, <laughs> we decided, banking we decided that the, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we decided the big issue was really that nobody even agreed what happened. And so if you can't look at the result of what happened, if you can't see it, as a lot of people I don't think can, then you know you can't explain it either, right? And, and so this was a, in a way a first step to sort of invite debate about, okay, what, you know, is this a really correct picture? And then what happened? Why did it, why did it end up this way? So as a result of that, and turning to the data strategy, what we initially thought, we had initially some ideas which turned out to be wrong, right? So our first idea was that um, there were two visions, you know, there was a J-curve analysis and a disaster capitalism analysis of what happened in the transition. And one of those had to be right, right? They could not both be right. So we initially got into saying, okay, I think this, you think that, let's gather together some interdisciplinary data and, and we'll know which is right and which is not right. Right. And, um, and so this was very much, you know, I think, um, you know, um, a, a really important thing we were trying to do. We were trying to, and our strategy was trying to say, okay, let's not just look at economic data, which tends to be how people will look at it. But we're also gonna look at demographic data, which we knew to be extremely disturbing and also to ethnographic data, which we also knew revealed a lot of things that were never discussed in economics and not even in political science, although political science research tends to have a lot more interview techniques and even in country cultural experience. You know, so my research, for instance, it was based on field work from you know, years learning the language, et cetera. It's, it's still a different level than anthropology, but we're much more in that direction than economics is, for instance. Right? 
And then also we, we looked at public opinion research um, because that's a kind of, in a way, a middle ground between you know, detailed anthropological studies, which tend to be very close to the ground and in one locale, and a sort of broader perspective on what people were thinking about the transition. And so those were the areas we initially got into. And, and, and we decided to get as much data as possible. And so as a result, we hired a research assistant who Kristen mentioned, who's now a PhD student at UCLA, who is, um, you know, is a fantastic researcher and basically pulled together a lot of publicly available data sets. Some, some of them were easy to compile and others were very not easy to compile. Um, in particular, the public opinion proved extremely challenging because we found that nobody had actually collected public opinion about transition in all the countries. And Kristen's point on this, which I guess I sort of agree with, is like, maybe they didn't really care what people thought about it. You know? I didn't. You guys um, didn't but... have a choice. I mean, people in the region, who cares what you thought? It's not like you could do anything about it, right? Yeah. So, but in I case mean, they... Yeah. So let me just finish on the data thing. So the data thing, we pull all this data together. And our idea was to create a massive index, a massive data source, and then to create an index of, you know, how well transition was going in different countries, you know, um, based on these multiple different indicators. And then we realized that that was like a pretty bad idea um, for sort of methodological reasons, which I'm now forgetting, but having to do with the fact that they're all sort of correlated. <laughs> With one another to some extent. So we uh, and and basically it was too uh, the data was too multidimensional in in a lot of ways, right? So it didn't. So basically the data on mortality, which you, one of the things we were initially really surprised at is if you look where people are dying, it's not necessarily the same place where the economic crisis is the worst. The economic crisis, by the way, is much worse in Central Asia, but in Central Asia people don't die because of transition to the same extent as they do in Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia. And the reason is, is cultural, basically. It's, it's essentially to do with alcohol. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, it's Vodka. to do with alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Vodka, or actually Samagon, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and then other people who, whose life expectancy may be increasing, like Serbia is an interesting case, where life expectancy didn't really dip that much after the transition. But a lot of people left the country, so there's huge out migration. That tends to be in other countries, right? That are um, that are Southeast Europe, but happen to be closer to the EU, right? And so it's more available, and they're culturally more similar and able to integrate, you know. So they go to the EU, and that causes this huge emptying out of some places. So basically, different countries are experiencing, except the Visegrad countries, which are fine on everything everywhere else is experiencing one or another type of massive crisis after transition, but not always the same crisis. So I think that was one of the first insights we had out of the data. And then we published all the data uh, on our website, takingstockofshock.com. And, um, and so it's available for everybody else to analyze as well mm -hmm. as producing a sort of bibliography of the anthropological research on the region, uh, which can't be quantified exactly, you know. And so we published that as well on our website. So that was kind of, in a nutshell, our data strategy. Our finding, and here's a surprising finding, that I'll let Kristen say more about this, is that the, the surprising finding is that both of these major narratives are right. And or we, we found really strong evidence to support both the J-curve um, you know, perspective on transition and to support the disaster capitalism narrative on transition. 
um, you know, in, but it depended. So there were some people in the region, as you probably know well, and this is a part where when I say this, I often see people's wheels spinning and, and you can see them um, thinking or seeing things that maybe they sort of perceived in the past, but didn't really know. But, you know, in the same country, you have people that are that are enjoying the J-curve transition or doing amazingly well. I'm sure you see that in Georgia. And there's a lot of people who are suffering like the worst economic calamity ever in modern history. And that's part of what I think makes the transition so difficult to understand and why um, why different fields and different people have had such just totally disparate views about what happened. Yeah, I think the other thing just to, to, to tack onto that was part of the problem with our initial idea of doing the index and part of the problem with any of the quantitative data is that the nation state is taken as the unit of analysis. And precisely what Mitchell just said is that if you aggregate the nation state, the, you know, the way that GDP per capita works, if one person has all the money and everybody else has none, the GDP, you know, it, it gets averaged out, right? So if you don't look at inequality and if you don't look at the way that resources um, have been distributed within the national context, you're missing a big, huge part of the story. And so that's precisely why economists were able to kind of double down on the J-curve narrative, because they only looked at the nation state as the unit of analysis. And that allowed for them to hide or ignore, uh, and again, whether this was willful or not, willful or not is, a, is a big question, the reality that so many people were suffering but it doesn't show up necessarily in the economic data because it sort of gets averaged out. And I think that that's a really big important part of the story that Mitchell and I are telling is that there are this huge, there's this huge swath of the population, even in parts of rural Poland or rural Hungary, for instance, countries that are doing relatively well, that are responsible for the rise of some of these right-wing parties because they're so angry about what has happened over the last 30 years. And, and just for like listeners, can you explain what the J curve is, because uh, it's a hugely important part of your book. Uh, and uh, I think this is like how the book even starts. And can you just do a brief explanation of what that is for people who are listening? And, and disaster capitalism, <laughs> like just a brief explanation, yeah. Well, I mean, the J curve idea is essentially the idea that was put forward by a lot of economists at the outset of transition, that there would be that consumption of people would follow a kind of J curve after after communism, or you know, sort of like this. Uh, Kristen had the great. It's, it looks like the Nike swish swish. Nike swoosh, yeah. So basically, <laughs> basically, you'd start here and things would go down a bit, and then, but eventually things would go up, right? So they they thought that people would suffer after the transition, but it, that it it would be not a big deal, and it only lasts a couple years, and then everybody would be doing so much better afterwards. Real transition, however, in a lot of countries followed more of a disaster, you know, track. <laughs> Which was Georgia, just down. <laughs> Georgia, you know, is kind of fa faced this, I think, where it was more like a U-curve. <laughs> and so the, the difference is that it was much deeper. Georgia, according to official data, lost like 60% of its economy much, much deeper than the Great Depression in the United States, which still, by the way, is talked about in the US and shapes all sorts of economic policies in the US. And it also lasted for much, much, much longer. Um, so uh, the US economy after the Great Depression came back to where it was you know, within 10 years. It bottomed out after three years and was back to where it had started in, I think, seven years or something. Um, in average post-communist country, 
uh, it lasted, the, the recession didn't bottom out for 10 years. So that's like three times longer than the Great Depression and didn't come back until about 20 years later. Uh, and I, I was just looking before where Georgia fits on that. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, uh, it looks like the Georgian economy, I don't know, had two depressions. So it, it bottomed out in 94 and then it hit the bottom again in, in 1999. So it's kind of typical, and it really didn't come back to, um, to a 1990 levels until 2006, which is kind of average, really. Um, so you're talking about a 17-year period where things are worse. And so, you know, our, the, the expectation is that, you know, okay, well, you know, one or both of these narratives have to be right because they seem so contradictory. But in fact, what we find is that there are a lot of countries that suffered you know, as Georgia did in this kind of disaster capitalism, you know, kind of uh, uh, way. And with all sorts of consequences for Georgian politics, you know, that you're kind of living through. And then, um, and then there are other countries that, you know, had a kind of two or three year drop and then went up. So in the Visegrad countries in general, they followed a path that was not dissimilar from the Great Depression. Whereas what Georgia went through is honestly the worst economic collapse in, in modern history in any country that set of countries that we've uh, measured. And, and we get that data from the Madison Project, which is a big historical project, which has been seeking to find you know, uh, GDP figures in all countries of the world back to the 1500s. And, you know, their conclusion is that this is the worst ever, or that data shows that it's the worst ever uh, economic crisis in modern times, worse than the economic crisis of the, of the Second World War, for instance, which you could say it was very bad, probably, but it lasted from 39 to 45 or 47, maybe on the outside. So it was probably half as long as what happened in Georgia or other post-communist countries. Absolutely. You know, I'm just reviewing this new book um, uh, that's just come out. I don't, actually, I'm not even sure it's out in the U.S. It's, about, it's out in, in the U.K. It's called Free Coming of Age at the End of History by Leah Yippee. Highly recommend it. It's, a, it's an Albanian personal family history of the transition in Albania leading up to the 19, 1997 civil war that killed like 2,000 people and led to the entire, you know, the entire economy collapsed because of these pyramid schemes and I mean, obviously, sitting here um, in Serbia and in, in, in Belgrade, you have to think about the Yugoslav wars as well. And you know, just the outs. In addition to the economic collapses, which were significant, um, you also had just sort of war um, and and an absolute internal um, strife. She she talks a lot about the out migration, for instance, from Albania in the nineties and, and these boats of the images of these boats, like overflowing with Albanians sort of lumbering their way towards the Italian coast and sort of trying and being turned around. And these people, you know, on these boats, 72 hours, you know, they're like parched. Um, it's just this, it, the image of these um, desperate East Europeans trying to get out in those early years of the 90s, as their economies were collapsing, as the, you had the rise of the mafia, you have these pyramid schemes that wiped out everybody's savings. I mean, it was catastrophic above and beyond, right? The, um, the, the, just the, just the 
economic depression and the privatization, right? There were all these social consequences that I think are also really important. And, and what I love about this book, I have to say, it's um, after maybe Jana Hensel's book, uh, Zonenkinder, uh, about Eastern Germany, it's one of the first really sort of heartfelt and, and beautifully written books about a kind of personal experience of transition uh, that, that really kind of calls out capitalism for all of the damage that it did to people's lives in the 90s. And I think that's pretty impressive, to be honest, because I haven't seen a book like this um, for like the mainstream uh, Western publishing media in a while. There's this, uh, there's this film named, uh, called Klopka, which is like a, Ser I think it's like a Serbian film where like there's no healthcare anymore. And like guy's son needs like a surgery. And so he has to like get in bed with the mafia to do something for them, to get the money for the surgery. And I was like, that's like, Klopka is like great post like communist uh, film to show how horrible it was in, um, in Serbia, but Georgia has has everything that Serbia and Balkans have, but more. We've had <laughs> we've had you know like you know modern one of the worst crises in modern history, and it also just keeps going. Like it doesn't stop here. Like it doesn't. There is no relief. You know, it's like this idea that somehow soon something will change. There's absolutely no sign of it. Um, and so, and, and plus, because we are so sort of tucked away in these mountains, sort of away from everything, very small population, we don't have a lot of um, like rich uh, natural resources to sell like oil. And really our so-called comparative advantage is free cheap labor to Europe, right? Like for in, in the form of like care workers. So mm -hmm. we really don't have much in this like uh, in, this, in this sort of world order of capitalism um, to really leverage ourselves in any way in a very, very unstable political ruling class. Um, yeah, so but I want yet, yeah, go ahead. But yet I would, I would say one of the things we noticed with Georgia is Georgia is often touted as being like the best place in the world to do business, right? <laughs> Extremely successful neoliberal economy. And, and in a way the, um, you know, for most economists, I think working in, you know, international organizations, they would see Georgia as a huge success case. And I think this speaks to exactly the kind of discontinuities that we're trying to address in this book, right, is Georgia is actually in a way the perfect case of this, right, where, in, you know, I agree with you that it's, it's, it's a fairly dismal picture in a lot of ways. And yet, from an international point of view, they'd say everything is great. You know, everything is fantastic in Georgia is this is like the ideal kind of country you want to be, you know, is you want to be exactly like Georgia. Right. And um, and and I think that's why, again, what we're trying to address is miscomprehensions. Right. So how can it be that Georgia is both a model country and a disaster? Right. At the same time. And that I think the answer for us is has to do with inequalities and has to do with um, you know, understanding that that certain proportion of people in Georgia did exceptionally well. You know, it may not be a big proportion, but it, there are a lot of people who did great, including like uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Ivanishvili, right? You know, I mean, he's like super well off, and there are, I'm sure, other sort of mini oligarchs in Georgia who are doing great. And then also there are a lot of professionals in cities, you know, like who are well educated 
um, in the capital city who are doing great, you know, fine, you know, uh, maybe in some ways better than they did before communism, right? And maybe one thing, same... one thing to add, though, one thing to just, sorry to interrupt, but I think it's important to, at least in the Georgian case, because it's such a small yeah. place, that most of the oligarchs got their money from elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yes, these are actually not, unlike, for example, the oligarchs who, who emerged in eastern Ukraine from the mining industry or the right. oil, oil oligarchs in Russia, someone like Zidzina Ivanashvili or in an earlier Bendu, uh, Bendukidze, uh, these are people mm -hmm. who got their money elsewhere and are actually, they didn't, they didn't get the billions of dollars yeah. from, the, from Georgia. Well, presumably there's also like a technical and educated class that's done fairly well, I think in Georgia, I would imagine. I mean, maybe they haven't, but I think that in general some, you know, and, and then you have a lot of people who are just kind of more invisible because they tend to live outside the capital city right or in certain neighborhoods and um and they've done they've had a totally different experience and that's the kind of experience it sounds like Kristen, this book that you found you know sort of yeah. documents right and so I, I think what we try to do and this is really hard you know for us actually in this book is to reach a balance you know but we have to acknowledge both sides of this right because that is, in fact, people's lived reality. Like, we know tons of people who, who did really well. In fact, you could also argue, some people have said, well, all the people who left, say, Georgia, right, and they're living, maybe the, a lot of them are doing better, too, because now they're living in, I don't know where they live, but in London or wherever they're living in Germany, you know, and they're undoubtedly working and doing well, and they have a higher standard of living. And so we don't want to erase anybody's experience, right, in this. We, we don't want to say, okay, no, those people don't exist or they're not important. Um, but what we do want to create is just a picture taking these fragmented, like a shattered, you know, mirror. We want to take these fragments and sort of put them together in a kind of picture that makes sense. And this is, and the sense that we make of it is an inequalities perspective. We say, look, there were very diverse outcomes of transition. It's, it's a kind of unique crisis, right? Because we reach for, like in the Great Depression in the United States, nobody really did that great right people who had their money in the stock market lost everything people on the street lost their jobs everybody suffered it was like an experience of shared suffering and i think that's also how world war ii is remembered probably how world war one is remembered you know there's these crises are usually experiences of shared suffering the transition crisis was not an experience of shared suffering it was an experience of some people suffering massively more than they've ever done before and some people doing amazingly well. It's, you know, it's, and that those two things are very, very hard to keep in mind at the same time. It's an experience of growing, massively widening inequality. Um, and, um, you know, so much so like a disastrous level of inequality, if you will, where, so, where there's so much hope and aspiration and improvement at the same time as your neighbor down the street has so much suffering, right? And, and I think that's the barrier to understanding um, the transition is that for humans, it's very hard to look at a crisis like that. Uh, from the life of one member of the parliament, once uh, it was a discussion, not a discussion, but it was a hearing of uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs in the parliament. And I expressed the opinion that uh, if you remember the Putin uh, told once that uh, Nikola of the Soviet Union was the uh, biggest geopolitical catastrophe. And uh, I told that it is wrong, but I will 
uh, refrain it like it was the biggest humanitarian catastrophe generally. And everybody, whole media and right wings and so on, labeled me as a pro Putin. Uh, the problem, the one of the problem is in Georgia generally, especially in Georgia. I mean, that with the country which has uh, some disputes with the Russia territorial disputes and so on. That every time when you are talking about the different approaches to development or alternative approaches to development, it understood that you are pro-Russian, you know, and it it's closed somehow. It is something like gatekeeper from healthy discussion generally about the transition, about the Soviet past, about uh, capitalism and so on and so on. Because any only one word about the transition, about the collapse of Soviet Union, like even if you try to uh, uh, have the reflection about Soviet Union, it means that you are already pro-Russian, you know? And uh, it is really the biggest gatekeeper and it's it is damaging any kind of discussion in Georgia. I have one question uh, the, the, about the methodology, for example. Did you, um, uh, did you use some data which will show us uh, the social mobility in this country? Because we know that, okay, you have, uh, mentioned it just a few minutes ago that, for example, Ivanishvili, Bendukidze, and so on, these are the people which made their uh, fortunes in abroad, for example, in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But if you see Georgia, uh, whole richest people are either the uh, either the old part of uh, nomenclatura, which grabbed their uh, possessions during the, I call it, uh, second uh, primitive accumulation after the collapse of Soviet Union and all um, the, I don't know, children of them, sons, daughters, and so on. Because there is no social mobility. Maybe, maybe the uh, Visegrad countries on some different countries, I don't know, uh, which are more closer to European Union, there are some possibilities because I, I, I made some small research about, about the privatization, the ways of privatization, how it was conducted, for example, in Slovenia, and how it was done in uh, post-socialist countries, post-Soviet countries. It was totally different because so, uh, there were some uh, labor uh, participation institutions during the uh, privatization, for example, in Yugoslavia and in the countries where they had some uh, experience in the Nowadays, it is called um, uh, social uh, dialogue uh, on the uh, factory level, but we did not have it at all such kind of experience. So our privatization uh, run in a different way, in more corrupt and in more violent way. So, uh, and the and second aspect is, for example, that they are close to uh, European Union, and because they are close to European Union, it became very soon the member of the European Union, the young people, they had the opportunity to find the job and more or less good pay job legally. And for the people which are not part of the European Union and post-socialist countries, post-Soviet countries, which did not become the part of Soviet Union, for them it's quite difficult to find some legal job. 
in the European Union, which would be more or less well paid. It means that uh, in our uh, the, the case, any uh, channel of social mobility is closed because one of the uh, one channel is that you know um, the, the redistribution of the wealth, and we did not uh, that, that don't have any any institutions of redistribution of the wealth. Uh, the second is that, uh, for example, whole wealth is concentrated in the hands of former uh, nomenclatura or the inheritance of nomenclatura. And the uh, second, uh, third is that even if you try as a young guy to find some job abroad to uh, open for yourself the channel of social mobility, it is already closed because you are not a part of the European Union. And that's why my question is, do we, uh, even on your website, web page uh, of your book, because you mentioned that we have some data uh, with which you can operate, uh, could we find some uh, data which will show us uh, the channels of social mobility or the possibilities of social mobility generally? Because even if we take this Bourdieu classification, Bourdieu classification of capital, for example, economic, cultural, social, and symbolic capital, it is redistributed very unequal in Georgia, so which is which is the base of social mobility. So it was my, this was my question. Social mobility, it can be difficult, but there are studies of social mobility, right? I, I don't know them that well, and we don't include them in the book because it's too technical. But, um, and also I don't know if you can get data for all the countries. So we were initially trying to do this index. So we were trying to only use data that we could get for all the countries, you know, um, and have a complete set. Um, but I can point you in the direction. I would just look up, you know, social mobility. We use Google Scholar. So you go to Google Scholar and you type in social mobility. You can figure out like which indicators they typically use. Um, one, one other source I would say that, you know, the way that I think this is studied um, to some extent, you know, the best way to study it is doing household surveys. Um, but you have to do it over a long period of time to really get social mobility. But to some extent, you would go around and survey people door to door. And this is done, you know, in um, it's like kind of the, the typical way that really good income studies are done. And also, you know, you could use it for mobility as well. And I would look at this organization called the Luxembourg Income Study. And um, that's the one that, you know, is kind of the a consortium of European countries to sort of provide this type of data, like uh, survey data, basically about income. But it's not done in every country or in every year in every country. And you have to, the government has to sort of pay to like, you know, do it, you know, and so not everybody does it. But, um, and then I think the further obstacle, you know, in a place like uh, one of the post-Soviet places is that, people don't necessarily report their incomes, you know, so you don't really know always from official data, you know, what class they're in, you know, uh, or how much they're earning, you know, but yeah, of course you can do that. And I, I hear what you're saying. It sounds like Georgia's in a unique circumstance, right? Because of not being in the, so probably um, uh, out migration is less in Georgia than if you were close to the European Union. For countries that um, where it's legal, um, it could be even super higher, right? You know, potentially. Well, we don't and, have that many people to begin with. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
but you know some countries are really at risk of just emptying out you know i mean bulgaria also you know may lose ultimately as much as half of its population right and it's interesting that that's also never been seen as a crisis like one of the things we thought was was uh, radical about this book is by viewing out migration as a crisis you know for many people the neoliberal perspective is it's all markets and everybody should go where their labor is most valued you know and it's not a big deal if they just leave you know and um it wasn't until more recently that people started thinking about this as a, as a crisis and any crisis of course in europe is the in-migration crisis so when you come to europe that's a crisis but when you leave your own country that's not a crisis you know um so you know i i do think that that all the issues you're talking about are real it sounds like it's very specific and yes there are ways you can study that in comparison obviously you know can i just i want to address something that you said at first about how anytime you talk about the failures of transition or humanitarian catastrophe immediately you become a pro-putinist or pro-russia mm -hmm. or something and so Mitchell, um, there was this article that we read, we discussed at some point about this thing called convergence theory. And I know that that term gets used differently, but when convergence theory is applied to the former socialist world, some economists, and it is it, I, I can't remember who wrote this article. I'll have to find it. But basically what they say is, look, some of these countries are just poor countries. And they were always poor. They will always be poor. It's not anybody's fault. It was just a, an, it was a, it was a, what was, what's the word? Um, it was a exception that for a brief period of time during communism, that they had this really high standard of living, but that was totally only possible under complete totalitarian conditions. And so once you took the totalitarianism away, they go back to being the poor backward countries that they always were and always should be. Um, and, and, and some of these economists will say, well, like, you know, because Poland and, and, and Czechoslovakia and uh, Hungary, they're like Europe. Um, had it not been for communism and Soviet imperialism, they probably would have been like Germany or France. And so even though they're still poorer than the EU, um, we kind of, you know, let them in the club because communism actually probably hindered their development, as opposed to places like Bulgaria or Georgia or Yugoslavia, where, you know, communism, like, yeah, it created all of this, like, high standards of living and roads and hospitals and schools and all those horrible things that, you know, were only sustainable under a completely centralized economy and a totalitarian government. So they got like a little bit of a, the taste of modernity, but they never really deserved it because they weren't democratic or whatever. And so therefore they're just back where they should have been anyway. I mean, literally people publish this narrative, okay? Now the, the irony of that narrative is first of all, it's like disgustingly ethnocentric and racist, but worse about it and what I find really funny is that it actually seems to suggest that communism works really well for the development of backward countries and the global economy. And they don't seem to seem to see that as a contradiction or a problem for their argument, you know? So I think that that's one thing that is worth pointing out when people say you're being pro-Putinist or something or pro-Russia is to say, but wait a minute, like we actually can look at the data here and point to purchasing power parity, we can talk about per capita income, we can talk about living standards, we can talk about all sorts of, you know, things to just 
you know, just logistically, there are many, many, you know, we show this in the book, many people living in the former socialist world that do not in 2018, which is the last time that we um, had data, have the standard of living that they had in 89 or 91, depending on where you are. That's important to point out. That's just a fact. But then the other thing that I think is really interesting, and people in the um, Soviet and post-Soviet and post-socialist context in Eastern Europe tend to forget is that there are, there still are, and there were really big, sometimes bigger, but they're still around communist and le far left parties in Western Europe. So like the Belgian Workers' Party has nothing to do with Russia, by the way, right? They sit in parliament and they are, are they're kind of like the locomotive of the left. They pull the debate to the left and they force the mainstream parties in Belgium to deal with policies that they otherwise wouldn't, like the neoliberals could get away with because they don't have a, a sitting opposition in parliament. You know, I think, you know, you look at like Podemos in Spain, you look at Die Linke in Germany, these different parties. So I think that it's also problematic in the post-socialist context to only code socialism or uh, or any you know sort of experiment with um non-capitalist economic systems as russian as if the mm. russians made that up they didn't that's totally wrong right and um and so i think it's also worth pushing back against those sorts of narratives when whenever you can to point out that well okay look like the belgian workers party is like a marxist leninist party but they're, they were, you know, they were actually originally a Maoist party and, and then they went through a brief flirtation with Marxist-Leninism and now they're just like a kind of a good left Euro-communist party, like every, like cities or whatever in Greece. And so I think that um, it's really important to, to break out of the strictures of the post-Soviet um, narrative around Russia. And I, there, I don't remember if we cited in our book or if it's in a different book, but there's this wonderful article by my two Romanian colleagues where they talk about zombie socialism. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this article. It's, it, you can Google it, it's called zombie socialism. And basically they're talking about the way in Romania that anytime somebody brings up like regulating the banks or taxing wealthy people um, at a higher rate or building, you know, raising taxes to build new roads or to upgrade the infrastructure, they get called socialists or they get called communists, right? And so this narrative of the communist past really is very present in the in the in the contemporary moment as a way of preventing any kind of redistribution and i think that's really important to address and that means that means talking about contemporary politics but it also means going to the data and that's why i think that having the data on the website as we do you know anybody can go in there and crunch those numbers we, we have links to all of the relevant websites, all of the relevant articles, all of the relevant sources that we use to, 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 to help people understand that this is, um, the reason that there are these two competing narratives is because the J-curve people, um, whose narrative is true for a certain percentage of the population have just been much better at sort of propagating their point of view through the official channels in the last 30 years. And it's only now that you're beginning to see these dissenting voices coming not only from, I think, within the international organizations, but also from people within the former socialist world, which is really important.
So I would, I would, I would agree with that I'd add, you know, a couple things that I thought on political strategy, like I think what you're talking about is what's the strategy for talking about this, right? And so as soon as you talk about certain, you know, oh yeah, things were a mess, then you're called a pro-Russian. And, and it, honestly, I don't, we have a similar type problem in the US where like there's so much anti-communist and anti-socialist rhetoric that um, it's very hard to also talk about those issues. But I think you have it kind of worse, right? Because you have a, a kind of war, you know, in effect, a frozen conflict, if you will, you know, which makes it much more um, emotional for people, you know. And so I think, honestly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother with that. I think that's an unwinnable rhetorical strategy. I think, I think what I would focus on is just a teardown critique of neoliberalism, right? I mean, so, so the, the, it's better probably from a rhetorical point of view to attack your opponent you know, then even put forward, you know, positive programs, which I see you're putting forward, which is good. But I think um, the key element is you have to find a way in the public imagination to connect neoliberalism to the bad outcomes that people have, because everybody sees the bad outcomes, it sounds like, right? But they don't connect it to neoliberalism, right? Um, so in the healthcare, for instance, you have to, you know, put forward that, you know, Here's neoliberalism in healthcare. What is it delivered? It's delivered all these things that people don't want. And in many, many other areas, it's delivered things that people actually don't want. And then, you know, I think as a positive program, from my point of view, <clears throat> would be to introduce, you know, some talk about like, well, neoliberalism basically leads to inhuman outcomes <clears throat> that nobody can morally justify. And <clears throat> And then that, you know, um, socialism, you know, which is a bad word, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, in fact, all developed economies combine both elements of capitalism and elements of socialism. Like we, all the Western successful countries all have probably much higher social spending than Georgia does. <clears throat> so why is it that everybody's moving to these countries, you know, where they're spending more on the society? Well, it's because they actually also produce better jobs. So better, so basically the socialism is supportive of capitalism, you know, in a way that the neoliberals have uh, not understand. So creating, you know, healthcare creates more opportunity. It creates more jobs, right? In the healthcare sector, right? It, you, you were talking about the people you're, you're planning to bring on strike, right? If you put more money into, you know, even means testing, you're creating jobs, you know, you pay them more, you're bumping up the economy, right? So all these things actually lead to more jobs and more economic growth. Um, and, and by the way, also more support for more trade, right? So, I mean, I think that you're stronger on the, on the negative, honestly, is it sounds like the biggest issue you face is that um, people in Georgia, for whatever reason, are convinced still that the more neoliberalism, the better integration. But it seems like it should be easy for you to point out that the more neoliberalism has not produced anything actually very good. I think like uh, libertarians and neoliberals have had like a 30 year start on us. <laughs> so they control all the institutions and they mm. sort of create the sort of the, the atmosphere. And so that's really the big problem, right? there should be almost everyone in parliament now if we had like any of the institutions that would challenge mm -hmm. liberalism set up most of them would agree with us probably but there is no alternative 
really. Right. We are Thatcher's like <laughs> baby, you know, like there's right. Like they have been able to silence and marginalize. Like in, let me give you an example of why how communism <clears throat> is very much related to uh, neoliberal reforms or like uh, libertarian reforms, which are you know mm -hmm. same thing. I use them interchangeably in this context, like radical uh, market free market reforms. Mm -hmm. Like Sak Ashwili, the former president, left 2012 and 2011. He, he had two freedom things. One was a Freedom Act, a Liberty Act, and one was a Freedom Charter. Mm -hmm. One outlawed communism symbolically, uh -huh. and one outlawed spending mm -hmm. and progressive taxation. So, yeah. <laughs> and so, those are laws now? It's what? And those are laws now? Yeah. So he did that in the Constitution. We are not allowed to have more than like thirty percent of spending on our budget, and like in progressive taxation and all symbols, hammer and sickle everywhere, uh, and communism is outlawed. So the right wing here very much constantly knows that communism for people and social basic social services are somehow connected. So if they can't allow either of them. And so they have to first fight you ideologically to destroy any attempt to yeah. reimagine the past, right? Question. And then, because if you do that, then you're going to start questioning a lot of their reforms. So it's very combined. And this is like what um, we had an interview uh, about how communization became criminalized in, 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 mm -hmm. in Europe, you know, which was led by the Poland and the Baltic states who are like these sort of yes. avant-garde, you know, radical vanguard of the, of the, I think, pretty much fascist right wing, right? And so they go and they try to outlaw everything um, uh, related to communism, try to make it equivalent to fascism and like stories of like victims of communism, like, you know, like people were put in like Holocaust camps and then saying, and then tying that into everything social being related to that. So if you're like, hey, you should have like, you know, free lunch for kids who are starving because it's so poor. Um, right. It's like most of the, like, it's a huge, one fourth of the country or one sixth of the country, I think is getting, social services and most others are applying double or triple that and not getting it you know and so people are that like they're very poor you know not just poor like you know catastrophic situation mm -hmm. on the political level we have quite different situation uh, compared with i would say um uh east european countries because of the first force reason i will add to your list of the reasons why uh, left uh, is um, why left disappears generally from politics in Eastern Europe is that uh, exactly left-wing parties were the parties which conducted neoliberal reforms in Eastern Europe. This, this is a big problem because it is, it is quite the, still alive with the uh, understandings of the people because they, in my opinion, they felt themselves betrayed in some sense. Um, but uh, but the, the general problem is that uh, the working class, after uh, the class consciousness, you know, uh, the, in Eastern Europe, uh, there is no class consciousness uh, among the working people. There is, uh, I don't know, is the reason of so the reason because the Soviet Union was a classless society and it uh, contributed to the process of 
uh, eradicate of class consciousness among the working people, or it's another reason, uh, it's another uh, discussion maybe, but, but without the class consciousness, it's quite difficult to gather, to organize working people, you know? And uh, also the deindustrialization and disappearance of mass uh, employment places, and uh, for example, factories and uh, so on and so on. Uh, it also contributed to the disappearance of organized workers. You know, Sopo is a best uh, example of it, how difficult it is to organize the people. Because in my opinion, exactly the working people should become again the um, biggest leverage and uh, biggest supporter of the idea to um, introduce some social reforms and uh, introduce some social change. The same was also U.S. Uh, for example, was we are talk we were talking about uh, right wing populists, and uh, we know that uh, the biggest supporter of Trump have been the working people, white working people, is that Roosevelt from Roosevelt and so on, because they uh, I don't know how the uh, class consciousness if class consciousness is still alive in American workers, but in some extent yes, more than in Georgia and. But, uh, sure, and this, uh, you know, this disappearance of this class understanding also contributed to um, the um, to the uh, Georgian politicians. I would say not uh, people advisors from some uh, international financial organizations, but Georgian politicians to conduct such kind of radical uh, neoliberal reforms in Georgia. Because there was no uh, opposite. Uh, so, what was like maybe like um, a surprise for you, like something that you, when you were researching? I mean, you've already written so extensively before about socialism and and the post-socialist world, but what was like a surprise that you weren't expecting when you were compiling all the data and writing all the all the parts? And which I love that you have multiple parts of, of you know critique of the transition. Um, what was the surprise for you? So I think one of the things that surprised me uh, was in the public opinion data. So, which was done, it was the life and transition survey, which was done in three waves by the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that the data showed that public trust had plummeted and, and that people felt that most people in their country were worse off. But, in, but the same data showed that most people thought that they were better off. So, so when, they, when they asked about you individually, many people, many people reported that I'm actually doing pretty well, but my country is a shambles. And I thought that, that was interesting, right? Um, but that contradiction really sort of highlighted some of the, um, some of the, the reason why this J-curve narrative and the disaster capitalism narrative could be coexisting at the same time. That surprised me that people, because especially when I'm, you know, in, uh, in Bulgaria or in Serbia, people really complain a lot about how bad things are. So, so it was really interesting for me to hear that there are actually people out there who are, are pretty happy with their lives, despite what's going on. Now, of course, obviously this is all before the pandemic. So I don't know how it would change, but the data that we looked at, I thought that surprised me. I don't know, Mitchell, what surprised you? 
um, the thing that surprised me the most, honestly, in this book was that economists, when we started looking at just how far economists didn't trust their own data and basically said, you know, when they look at the Georgia data, for instance, on the economy, which I just looked at, they would say, well, we don't actually think that the depression was that great because we don't know what the starting point was because they measured it differently, right? So they don't trust their own data about the transition. And at the same time, they refuse steadfastly to look at anybody else's data. You know, I think that was the thing that shocked me the most is like just the way that there's like been a whole uh, movement to sort of cover up the economic data, the depth of the badness of the economic data by just saying, oh, we don't really believe that that's true. But then not really taking on board the demographic data, which also shows this kind of collapse, right? And the outmigration data, which also shows, you know, kind of collapse. So that just said to me, I don't know, that, that paradigms and ideologies are very powerful and causes people to be blind totally to like, you know, things that they see right in front of their heads. I can't tell me how many times I've talked about this to people and said, Oh, I guess you wouldn't think because you're you're sort of social democrats like us. But if you look at you know people are like, oh yeah, you know that makes me think of the lady who lived next door. You know, like the old lady who lived next door who really suffered throughout this transition, right? That makes me think of, and you know, people just didn't. They they obviously saw those people. They walked by them every day, but they didn't think that there was like an economic collapse happening because they're experiencing this kind of like you know regeneration. Right? Um, now, can you uh, can you just shortly explain us the correlation between uh, this uh, shock therapy neoliberal reform and the development of democracy? You know, because uh, in my first years when I started uh, to teach at the university, um, my 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 one my themes was the democratization. Like it was quite popular to this time to talk about democratization and so on. And uh, one uh, opinion was quite common and quite popular among the um, political scientists um, to this time, that uh, market reform will bring automatically democracy. You know, and it emerged the, as a wrongest, um, wrongest uh, notion at all. Uh, and can you explain this um, in, from your point of view? Can you explain this um, uh, misunderstanding or uh, failure of not only of uh, scientists but politicians and reformists that um, the, the neoliberal reforms, market reforms, will bring automatically uh, the democracy in the country? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a it's super complex question, but let me just say one thing from a simple, again, rhetorical point of view. Obviously, neoliberalism did not bring democracy everywhere. It didn't, right? I mean, if you look in the post-Soviet space, which of these countries is a democracy? You know, it's not. And so, um, so again, that's a way to start, you know, levering into sort of tearing apart this kind of association. Obviously, they wanted to claim that neoliberalism will bring everything positive, right? You know, everything good is because of neoliberalism, you know? And um, to some extent, you know, there is this like theoretical association of in liberal theory between liberal economy and, you know, liberal society, right? Um, and there is that, you know, but at the same time, there are also tensions, obviously, between neoliberal economic 
approaches and democracy. In fact, one of those tensions is the increase of inequality that we talk about in the book, right? That democracies are assumed in our literature and political science to produce more equality. But actually in the post-communist societies, they've produced more inequality, right? And I've reviewed a book recently, uh, you know, by Karakoc, he's like a Turkish scholar working in the US, you know, about that. That's pretty interesting to read about how actually democracy produced more inequality not only in post-communist countries, but also in Southern Europe and Turkey and Spain as well. And, um, and so there, there are, I, I guess that the short answer would be there are ways, arguments for maybe there's a supportive arguments and also opposing arguments, right? You know, so that they, it's uncertain what the effect of neoliberalism is on democracy. It has some, in some ways it supports it, in some ways it opposes it. In, in Georgia, there, there was an understanding that, you know, the freedom uh, is equal property. And uh, if you have the property, you have the freedom. It's, it means the democracy, no? Democracy is equal the freedom and freedom is equal the property. Yeah, that's a cl classical liberal perspective. Yeah, yeah. John Locke or something, yeah. Yeah, I don't think they, I mean, I, I just think that that's, I mean, that's part of the neoliberal ideology that that somehow freedom of um, private property and and the what you call the second primitive primitive accumulation um, is somehow correlated with democracy. The way that it's correlated with democracy is that if you have enough money, you can buy the elections, which is what happens in most East European countries. And to the extent that most elections are now even in the United States, you know, these really expensive things where it's not really about representation of the people or the constituency, but about paying for ads on television, what suits you wear and, you know, uh, who is better at spinning or slinging mud at the other guy. I mean, most elections in most countries are just manipulation of the population for a brief period of time. And then the results come in and then it's business as usual again. I mean, that's what we've seen. And so, I mean, that's why the populists are having the success that they are. And so to the extent that demo that private property means democracy, it means the kind of democracy where money matters. And I think that's what we need to talk about because democracy is not only democracy where the richest guy wins. It's also supposed to be the idea that the people have a say in their system of government. At least that's what I learned when I was at primary school. And I don't think that we know, I don't think anywhere really in the world do we really live in systems where ordinary people have a say in their system of government, including in the United States. There were all these studies about how much more a vote from a rich person counts you know, uh, somebody who's who's wealthy than an ordinary worker. And I think that that's, you know, this is what 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 um, Mitchell said earlier about attacking the neoliberal narrative is a really good point. I think that's 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 really important. But you have to connect it with the critique, this critique of classical liberal democracy, which is that somehow one individual vote of individual people coming together could actually change things. Because I, I sort of, you know, I'm, I'm beginning to become rather cynical, especially living, I mean, I've just been in Bulgaria where they had elections, um, you know, they've had the same prime minister for a bunch of years, his government resigned, they had elections, they've given three different parties a mandate, they can't form a government, they've had a caretaker government for some months now, now they're going to have new elections, and it's all just, it's, people are just fed up. 
right with this. And I, and it, it's not going to change anything. Everybody in Bulgaria, anybody who's anybody who has any, you know, sense who can get out leaves, because as you say, they have a possibility to go to the European union. Um, and so there's this massive exodus. That's why 50% of the population might eventually leave Bulgaria. These just empty the whole country out. It's because of this weird connection between neoliberalism and what is the really the Potemkin democracy that many East European countries got after 1989. Because let's face it, Western advisors in the World Bank and in the EBRD and in the IMF and even in the EU and USAID, they were much more concerned with setting up market economies so they could export goods to Eastern Europe and make, you know, extract profits and extract working labor, doctors and nurses and caregivers and all the people that they need to tend to their old people and their graying economies. Did they really care about setting up democracies? No, that was just the veneer um, because they needed political parties in power who would implement neoliberal reforms. I mean, that's, I mean, especially I'm sitting here, you know, (laughs) in Serbia, not very far from the parliament where I'm staying. And there were just a bunch of politicians posing for some photo shoot in front of the parliament in their suit, fancy suits, in their fancy Mercedes parked up on the sidewalk. And it's like, that's what you get, right? I mean, it's not, it's not what people were sold, right? The idea that these would be representative governments where people would actually have a say in the way that their countries were being governed. That was the ideal. I mean, I think that the Americans exported that ideal. I, I will say that many Americans believe in that ideal. I think a lot of people still believe in that ideal, but is that the reality? It's not in most East European countries, and I don't think it's necessarily in the United States anymore either, which is what Trump, I mean, January 6th kind of showed us that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's fair to critique democracy, obviously, and and the defunct dysfunctions of democracy, but I think the question's coming from a somewhat different standpoint, which is like, you know, there's also a difference between democracy and authoritarianism. Sure. Right? You know, and so I, I mean, I think the American democracy, for instance, is fairly dysfunctional right now. But <laughs> would I rather have Trump be dictator for 20 years? No. No, no, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And so, so that's why, you know, neoliberals will say, look, you know, I mean, the more successful the economy, right? It, it, they believe that the more they implement their policies, everybody's going to be richer and then democracy will get better which is probably true, you know, except that for the piece that their policies don't really produce, you know, positive the economic changes that everybody needs, right? I mean, I think for the economy, we, we came down in, in the book and it's talking about, you know, more inclusive economy, right? So that you can't deny, right, that, that the neoliberal policies have helped some people. I mean, some people have been helped, right? The problem is they didn't help the majority of the people, right? And to make democracies survive in a lot of these countries, you need economic policies that at the very least, you know, serve the interests of the majority of people. And that's kind of how we end up framing it in the conclusion. But isn't it, uh, you mentioned this a few times, Mitchell, you know, that there's lived experiences that are, some are successful and some are bad. And I think, isn't that the critique of capitalism that it's only good for, you right so yeah. like in a way you know this is like or this is like you know a gilded age for some people 
Um, but in, in reality, if you compare on, you know, on the whole, and unfortunately, we, you know, we have to compare on the whole because individuals um, can do better. They can, they have emigrated, they have stayed here, they have found ways, you know, uh-huh. to be rich. But even like, you know, like an example of, of my family I could take where I feel like there is like a my family in the Soviet Union, which was very close, there wasn't much difference between them as far as uh, money or status, or at least like not as much, Yeah. much more coherent, much more loving, much more together. Now, no one speaks to each other. There's different classes. Uh, some are in the rural area, some are in urban. They don't even have money sometimes to travel to Tbilisi. So it's like the social fabric of just my family has severely, you know, been ripped. Yeah. It's just my, there are neighborhoods, there are everywhere where people, friends no longer are friends. And one of the saddest things actually that, you know, when I came back, I lived in the US for 22 years and then I came back hmm. here. Um, and so that's, I have the pleasure of having two countries that are insane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like I, I came back and then, um, I noticed a lot of like like older women who were raised in the Soviet Union. They one of their their biggest pain was that they couldn't visit their friends and family anymore because traditionally you bring like a gift, like a little chocolate or something, when you visit, and it's sort of considered rude if you don't bring something. Yeah, yeah. You didn't have the money uh, to bring something to visit. And so because of that shame, or they didn't have enough to invite them, or maybe they were, you know, ashamed of their having no renovations anymore in their homes mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. things like that, that even the, the poverty has taken a huge toll on, you know, of, of just visiting each other, you know, basically, yeah. Sociability, yeah. And so like, even like, uh, we had like visa liberalization with EU, and I was doing door knocking, and I had asked this pensioner, I was like, what do you think about visa liberalization? And she's like, visa liberalization with Europe? She's like, I can't even go down to the town center with the money I make from the pension, let alone Europe. And then when you look at the numbers of who actually used visa liberalization a few years ago, it was like under 10%. Mm-hmm. Use the visa-free travel. That means most people were not traveling at all because they didn't have the ability to travel unless they yeah. emigrate, you know? So like, I think like, I just want to like, I don't think it's just, I don't think we can just say the individual because I think these people, people came with whole communities that have been deteriorating. Yeah, understood, understood. Yeah, I mean, this is, we definitely are cognizant of that, that, you know, Kristen brought that up a lot, this issue of sociability and how that was lost, you know, in the communist era. And, you know, it's definitely lost in capitalism in general. It's, it's something that was, you know, maybe unique to the, that type of society, you know, where everybody was kept on an equal. But I would just say that the more equality you have, you know, in the economy, the more, you know, people will, in a similar family will, you know, be able to interact with one another, right? you know, and in society as a whole. So like, you know, I, it was funny, my, my family, like I have an extended family in the US, okay. And at the beginning of the COVID epidemic, we actually had a big family call where every, like all of our extended relatives got on this Zoom call, you know, and started talking about like how they're dealing with the pandemic and such, you know. And my anticipation would be that some people were really having a tough time because I know a lot of people were suffering. But in my family, um, nobody really was having a difficult time. 
almost everybody in my family was, you know, working online. They transitioned to work online. You know, they were in jobs that were, you know, not super wealthy jobs, but like middle-class jobs where, you know, that you could basically transition to working online, whether you're a school teacher, uh, which I guess would be like an average middle-class job in the United States, right? Or if you're, you know, a shopkeeper or, you know, a consultant or professor or whatever, and, you know, um, not that my family's so representative, but it, it, it struck me that that was kind of like, wow, like, like, I can't believe everybody's having this like relatively similar experience. You know? <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, that's the thing is if you have a functional economy where people are actually making money, you know, at some level, you can have, you know, a certain degree of that, right? You know, but where you have a society where I guess what you're describing is there's an extremely wealthy elite or, you know, in the cities, and then you have like the majority in the countryside that are just living in this kind of like hell, you know, like, yeah, of course you can't really have that type of sociability even within families, you know, and, and it is a problem. And I, I, I suspect that most people see it as a problem, you know, to some extent. I will say though, that the, the sociality thing is something that really came out in the ethnographic chapter in the book. So to come back to the book a little bit, we, um, that was something that I, I felt really strongly about because in, in all of my, um, research and in all of my, um, you know, review of the public opinion data, one of the things that's really clear, and we make this, um, point in the book is that public trust has plummeted. And, and there was just a beautiful article in Reuters a couple of days ago talking about how low the vaccination rate is in Bulgaria, for instance. Um, the, the um, you know, hospital rooms are overflowing. They're running out of ventilators. The Bulgarian government is now having to ship COVID patients outside of Bulgaria to neighboring hospitals because it's so bad in Bulgaria. And um, they're wasting doses. They have all these doses. It's the lowest vaccination rate in Europe. And the problem is it's about public trust, like the society, like all of those links, those connections that people had to each other, to their families, to their friends, to their neighbors, to their colleagues, to their fellow students, you know, all of those connections were profoundly frayed by the catastrophes that followed the collapse of socialism. And I think that, again, because economists can't put a dollar value on those things. They don't know how to measure the importance and the salience of those things to the way that people experience the transition. Again, and this is where you have these very disparate narratives of the transition, whether it's J-curve or disaster capitalism, because I think that there are all these sort of ways in which people related to each other, ways in which people shared with each other, with people supported each other, people visited each other, people talked to each other, people had solidarity with each other, that that didn't have necessary, that didn't create economic value for GDP. And so it turns out that economists don't care about it if it doesn't produce value for the GDP that can be measured in a concrete way. But the experience of the loss of that is, is immense for people. And I think that what you're saying, and certainly, you know, what I hear in terms of the narratives around public distrust and just what's happening with COVID, I mean, I, I can speak very personally about, you know, being in Bulgaria with um, friends or, or uh, my, my ex-brother and sister-in-law and my nephew 
who aren't vaccinated and listening to their narratives of why they're not getting vaccinated, even as their friends and colleagues are literally dying of COVID in the hospital. It's, and it's, it's like a society that has kind of gone mad ab- about not knowing who to trust and believing that everybody is constantly out to get you. Because let's face it, for the last 30 years, they have been out to get you. So it's really, really hard to, to, to process what's going on. I mean, I think it's catastrophic in some ways, the, the, the massive level of distrust and social dysfunction that is characterizing these societies right now. I, um, in fact, was hoping to be able to, to travel to um, Albania, but the EU has just put Albania on an e-list because of um, the COVID situation there. It's like, you can never come into the EU now if you've spent you know, any time, if you touch foot in an E-list country, you're like tarred for, um, at least you have to find an EU country that will let you in for 14 days before you can travel on. So it's crazy what's happening in this part of the world. And I think that a lot of it is related back to this sort of social fissures that you were just describing in your own family, among your colleagues and friends. I mean, I think those things are really important to pay attention to. And to the extent that we address them in the book, we, we do address them to a certain extent in the public opinion chapter, but much more fine-grained, detailed way in the ethnographic chapter. I was going to say one thing like I, I really liked that was a theme in your book was the way that, you know, you were trying to, to center the fact that the transition was overseen by hyper-ideological economists who had no ability to, t- to take anything into consideration. And actually, um, I thought that that was a really important thing, uh, you know, especially in trying to make sense of the Georgian situation because of how ideological sometimes this transition is still seen, even if they can say that, you know, there have been these social catastrophes and things are bad, but there is this idealized view of neoliberalism and neoliberal capitalism that was, um, you know, pushed down people's throats, even though, and I think it's, you have this quote about how even though to make the idealized markets exist, they had to use, you know, unorthodox means, you know, to bring the markets into existence. Um, So this way that like, you have this kind of like these duplicitous transitionists who are, you know, whether they know it or not, or maybe they're duped by their own, you know, um, they're drunk on their own ideology. Um, they're well, you know, depending on how you read it. But anyway, I thought that this theme was like really, and it's started you're touching on it, that they had no ability to make sense of the social dynamic, the social fabric, um, you know, the institutional inability, or there's this part where you mentioned the, you know, they had this idea that the post-communist individual was going to be somehow immediately ready for markets, that they would somehow become, you know, homo economicus, you know, that they were going to just eventually, uh, or just rapidly become somebody whose whole past was going to be gone. Well, I think that, yeah, just to, I just want to just jump on exactly that, what you said, this homo economicus idea, because there, that comes back to this thing that I was talking about earlier about the convergence theory, that there's somehow like 
you know, there was this whole narrative in the 50s and 60s around modernization theory, which is that certain societies have like enterprising individuals who will come forth and, and be like the kind of Ayn Randian individuals that will bring markets to life and be entrepreneurs or whatever. And I think that there was really truly a fantasy among many of these um, mostly American, but also West European economists and transition experts and some of them were lawyers as well, uh, advisors, largely speaking, that believed that like that person, those, those people were like lying latent in these societies. And then all you had to do was like take off the, the lid of communism, the oppression of communism, and these beautiful entrepreneurial people would spring forth and, and you would have markets and capitalism. And, you know, again, I think, okay, you know, that is in of itself a very highly ideological frame of mind to have. That's no different than, you know, the old communists and the socialists saying that people are inherently good and everybody wants to be cooperative and share. And, and all we have to do is get rid of the superstructure of capitalism and people's natural human nature will come out and we'll all live in like happy little communes or whatever, right? So I think in both cases, there's a sort of ideological view about the state of human nature, about the natural inclinations of people that ends up driving what are very real policy recommendations without thinking for a second. This is why as an ethnographer, I go crazy that like that these ideas of the human, um, you know, capacity aren't in some way culturally bound or culturally rooted, depending on history and religion and gender. And, you know, I mean, like to think that there's like a universal raw nugget of a human that that functions the same way in all context, which is basically what many economists tend to do, is to think of that homo economicus in that way. I mean, that's the, that's the issue that I find really problematic when we're talking about um, policymaking. And I mean, it's the universalisms, the irony of what happened, I think, in the 90s, and, and Mitchell has written really wonderfully about neoliberal reform in Eastern Europe, but the irony is that they replaced one universalism the universalism of socialism or communism with the universalism of neoliberalism without really processing that these projects were both um, profoundly flawed in their kind of, um, it's not just the eradication of the individual as, a, a, as an autonomous functioning thing, but the eradication of society, the eradication of culture, the, the eradication of difference. They wanted to homogenize everything. And, and, and that was that turned out to be a disaster in the case of Eastern Europe, where they took all these neoliberal programs that they had tested in Latin America. And, and we write about this in the book and say, oh, well, they worked in Latin America. So we'll just take them from Argentina and Chile and Bolivia, wherever, and we'll just plop them down over here. And hopefully they'll work the same way. I mean, that was just so you know, again, as an ethnographer, it's like, seriously, do you have any sense of the differences between these different cultures and histories? And the answer was generally no. Markets work the same. People work the same in capitalism everywhere you go. <laughs> Shoigan, 